So what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? What does it mean to actually walk with Christ? What does it look like? Maybe you're not a Christian yet. Maybe you're confused and disheartened by some things that you hear Christians saying on the news and on social media because to you they don't sound so Christian. I know I can be sometimes. Maybe you're here today with a lot of questions about God and about what it means to have a relationship with him. Or maybe you're here today and you've been walking with Christ for a long time, but somehow your walk just feels stagnant and you're desperate to go deeper and walk more passionately, but you just aren't sure how to get yourself unstuck. Or maybe you're here today and things are just going great in life. Everything's great with your relationship with God. Everything's great with what's going on around you. But you have this thing inside of you that's beginning to say to you, what's next? Regardless of which one of those places you find yourself in your journey with Christ today, the question is really the same. What does it take for us to transcend the things that are holding us back in our walk with Christ? What does it take for us to overcome our circumstances, our questions, our fears, or our doubts? What does it take for us to overcome the obstacles that are in our way? What does it take for us to leave our past behind so we can accomplish the impossible. Those are the questions that we want to begin answering together over the next two months as we spend time visiting with the church in Philippi. So let's take a step back to set the stage. Remember Saul? We talked about Saul a few weeks ago right after Easter. And Saul was this guy who persecuted the early church sent by the Pharisees to absolutely destroy it. But Saul was transformed by an encounter that he had with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And once Saul is transformed, he becomes Paul, the 12th apostle, the author of almost half of what we now call the New Testament. And Paul is a church planter. He and his team go to major metropolitan areas to plant churches. They went to cities like Ephesus and Corinth and Philippi. If Paul and his guys were working today, they would be planting churches in cities like London, in New York, in Dallas, in Los Angeles. Paul and his team, what they would do is they would typically spend some time, they would go into a city and they would call it home for a while. They would build relationships And out of those relationships, they would share the gospel and form the core of a church. And over time, they would typically come come in and out of cities visiting. And in between the times when they were there, they'd be writing letters to encourage the church to keep moving forward. And one of those letters is the book in the Bible we now call the letter to the Philippians. And Philippians is kind of unique among all of the letters that Paul wrote, because it's the only one of his letters 
where he doesn't spend a significant amount of time trying to correct and modify bad behavior. So Philippians actually provides us probably the best picture that we could possibly have of what it means to be a mature follower of Christ and what a mature church, a healthy church, looks like. It's a book of encouragement. Philippians is a book where we find all sorts of verses that you see on t-shirts and coffee cups if you're into that type of thing. You've got chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work with you will carry it on into completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You've got 121, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You've got 214, which is every parent's favorite verse. Do everything without grumbling or complaining or arguing. You've all taught it to your kids, or you're going to go home today and teach it to them. Then you've got 3 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. 4 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say it, rejoice. 4 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. You have Four eight. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things. And 4.13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Philippians is a book that's all about encouragement. It's about joy. It's about transcending our situation so that we can leave the past behind us. Philippians gives us this beautiful picture of what it looks like to walk with God for 5, 10, 15 years. What it looks like to grow in our maturity and our walk with Christ. But it's short. It's a short, compact, rich letter full of encouragement for those who are seeking to follow. In it, Paul lays out how the gospel helps us to transcend human institutions and divisions, how the gospel helps us to transcend circumstances and mindsets, how the gospel can help us to persevere, be humble, to have confidence, to wait patiently and to rejoice. It gives us this great picture of what it looks like to actually put our faith into practice. So let's go back and kind of paint the historical timeline for this book. Paul and his guys went to Philippi in about 50 AD. It was at the very beginning of his second missionary journey. He went back to Philippi at least one other time that we know about in his third missionary journey, but it's likely that he went there more often than that because Philippi was what was, on, what was called the high road between Asia Minor and Greece and Rome, which he would travel often on his journey. So it's quite possible he spent much more time in the city than what is recorded in scriptures. The letter is actually written to them in 62 AD, so about 12 years after the church is planted, while Paul is in prison for two years in Rome. And as we said, it's unique out of all of the letters that Paul wrote, especially all of the letters that he wrote during his imprisonment in Rome, because the letter just has no sharp criticism or rebuke for its audience. It's a joyful letter. 
There's nothing disturbing. There's no problems that he's confronting. He's giving them some cautionary advice, trying to encourage them to keep moving forward, but it's not a letter of admonition. He's basically saying, hey guys, you're doing great. Keep going. How can I help you? It's not dogmatic at all. It's warm and it's friendly. It's frank and it's candid, but it's also quite cheerful and practical. The typical letter that you would get from Paul would be full of tough love. It's kind of like one of those lectures you would get from your parents before they ground you and sent you away to your room for three years. He says, I love you, but you really need to stop screwing around and get your life straightened out. That's the typical letter that you would get from Paul. But there's none of that in Philippians. Philippians is this picture of what a mature mature church and maturing believers look like in their walk. The main theme and thought throughout the entire book is this thought of joy and gratitude. So it's 62 AD. It's 12 years after Paul has planted this church. And Paul's in Rome. He's in prison. And the Philippian church hears about his imprisonment. So they send one of the people from their congregation, Epaphroditus, to Rome, to Paul. They send him with gifts. And they send him to spend time with Paul, helping to take care of him while he's in prison. Basically, the church sent Epaphroditus on what we would call a short-term missions trip. And it's at least the third time during this 12-year period that the church in Philippi has sent somebody with gifts to help Paul in his ministry, either planting other churches or when he finds himself in prison. And when it's time for Epaphroditus to pack up and leave Rome and go back to Philippi, Paul sends this letter with him back to the church. So that's the context. And so Epaphroditus carries this letter back to the church, and typically what would happen is when the letter is received, the church would gather together and it would be read out loud to them. And so as they would gather together, they would read the opening of this letter, which said, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you in all of my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. You read this introduction to the level to the letter full of thanksgiving, and his affection for them is so clear. He says, every time I think of you guys, every time I pray for you, I'm just, I'm filled with joy in my heart. Paul's not writing to them as an authority figure. It's actually the only one of his letters where he doesn't defend his apostleship to create this position of authority for what he's about to say. 
He's not writing out of a position of authority. He's writing to them as their friend, as their mentor, as their partner in ministry. There's this mutual respect and support that Paul and the Philippians have for one another. The Philippians were invested in Paul and he was invested in them. They were invested in his ministry and invested in his well-being. And their participation in his gospel ministry is not just this quiet enjoyment, this getting letters from Paul and sitting back and praying for him. No, it's active and it's effective. It's not just a sympathetic attitude. It's certainly that. But it's a sympathetic attitude combined with a practical action to the point of sacrificing themselves to support his ministry. This is the result of the Philippians' faith. It's a result of God working in them, which is what prompts Paul to write, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work with you, in you will carry it on. He's not saying, wow, look at all the good things you guys are doing. He's saying, look at how great God is. Look at what God is doing in your lives. Look at how God is growing you. It's not look at what you've done. Wow, you guys are great. Have confidence in yourselves. Good job, guys. Say, no, look at what God's doing. We can have confidence because of of what we see God doing in you. The fruit that was growing in the church at Philippi was not because of human exertion, but it was the fruit that results from the grace of God. And Paul just loves these guys. We don't find the type of language that we find in the beginning of Philippians in any other letter that Paul writes. In all of his letters, he talks about God's love for the people and his care for them, but he never shows this type of personal affection to any other group or any other church in the New Testament. And he crams a lot into these first eight verses. He endorses their leadership because he doesn't want to try and create a power struggle between himself and the church leaders. He expresses his thankfulness for them and his deep satisfaction in their partnership. He expresses hope and confidence that they will continue on with what they've started, that they will continue to transcend their circumstances, continue to grow in their love. And then there's this interesting phrase tucked kind of right in the middle of these eight verses. In verse 5, he says, because of your partnership in the gospel, from the first day until now. Paul's intentionally trying to bring them back in their minds to that point in time where it all began, 12 years earlier. He intentionally is drawing their attention back to that point because he wants them to remember their history. Because there's something in their history, there's something about what happened in those first days that was a key to their ongoing success. So if we're going to understand their ongoing success as individuals and as a church, if we're going to understand how they transcended their circumstances, how they overcame their obstacles, to put their faith into practice, we need to go back and look at what happened in those first days of the church at Philippi. 
So we want to actually flip back to see where the church starts. If you're reading along in your Bibles or on your devices, keep a mark in Philippians 1, but turn back to Acts chapter 16. So Paul's just begun his second missionary journey, as we said, and we're going to pick up this story in Acts chapter 16, verse 11. It reads, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And then the next day, we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira, named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. So there are three key people that we're going to be introduced to in the beginning of the church at Philippi. And the first one is Lydia. And as we read, Lydia is from Thyatira. So if you don't know where Thyatira is, Thyatira is in Asia. So Lydia is an immigrant to Europe from Asia. And Lydia is quite wealthy. She's an entrepreneur. She's in the fashion business. She's a hotshot. She's a driven person. She still has a home base in Thyatira, but now she's branched out to Philippi. It'd be like in the modern world, a fashion person having houses in New York and Paris flying back and forth, part of the jet set elite. That's Lydia. But she's a God-fearer. Paul finds her by the river with a group of women who are praying, which means that she's rejected the paganism and the polytheism that was rampant in that culture. She's come to the understanding that there's a single God. She's aligned herself somewhat to the teaching of the Jews, trying to understand more. She's trying to live this moral life. She's intellectual. She's a seeker. In in the midst of this, Paul enters into her framework and starts to complete her understanding. She understands that God has given the law and the commandments. She probably understands that there's some of them she does well, but there's probably a whole lot of them that she doesn't really measure up to. She has some concept that there's a process of atonement, there's a process of forgiveness, but she doesn't really understand how the concept of Jewish forgiveness can apply to her. How would it apply to an Asian immigrant living cross-culturally. She doesn't really understand how it all works for her. And this is where Paul shows up. Shows up in the middle of their Bible study. Be like if he walked into one of our rooms, pressed pause on the Beth Moore CD, and started talking. I have nothing against Beth Moore. I think she's fabulous. (laughs) But Paul stops the conversation and he engages her. He engages her with intellect and reason. And it says, as she listens to what he has to say, God opens up her mind and she becomes a believer. Paul helps her encounter Christ and it transforms her life. 
And from day one, Lydia is all in. She immediately goes and gathers her household, which in that day would mean her family members and all those who were working for her as part of her business. And she brings them to hear from Paul. And they believe. And they all become baptized together. And then once this happens, she invites Paul and all of his friends to come live with her. I don't know where they were staying before, but my guess is living with Lydia was a pretty big step up for these guys. She probably had a pretty nice place. And Lydia's house becomes ground zero for the new church. So let's keep moving on. We've got a couple more people that we need to meet in Philippi. So continuing in verse 16, once when we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out from her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. So this slave girl, she stands in absolute contrast with Lydia. Whereas Lydia is an Asian immigrant, the slave girl is a Greek. Lydia is in constant control, the driven CEO. Intellectual, the slave girl is impoverished, exploited, and has nothing. Where Lydia is controlled, the slave girl is manic. She's disruptive, out of control, following them around, screaming day after day. And what does Paul do? Paul doesn't invite her to sit down to an intellectual dialogue He doesn't invite her to a Bible study class about witchcraft and demon possession. No, Paul just gets mad. It's great. It's the humanity that you see in Paul. This girl's just following around day after day yelling. And finally, he just gets so fed up that he just turns around and yells at her. But he yells at her in the power of Christ. He confronts the evil that is inside of her head on. And in an instant, she is transformed. She goes from proclaiming that there is a way to actually personally knowing what the way is. There's no reason her intellect in the conversation. She didn't didn't sit her down and say, hey, you know how much more money you could make if you kind of took up a legitimate lifestyle? There's no conversation with her owners about how they're mistreating this poor girl. He just confronts the evil head on. And as a result, he got himself into a little bit of trouble. Because when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. 
The crowd, they joined in in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. The Jews, they're disturbing our city. They're advocating customs that we don't. But what the owners of this slave girl are trying to do is shift the attention. They're trying to shift the attention of their abuse of this girl towards Paul and Silas because they lost their source of money. They deflect from the real issue. They obfuscate. And what do they do to do that? They appeal to race. You can't trust them. They're Jews. And to understand what's going on, we've got to understand that shortly before 50 AD, Claudius, the emperor of Rome, had expelled the Jews from Rome. And so there's this undercurrent of anti-Semitism that's pervading the Roman world. There was a freedom of religious practice, but there was not a freedom to proselytize or to share your faith with others. It's this lazy, fair attitude. You do your thing and I'll do my thing. But as soon as you started trying to talk to other people about your thing and get them to come over to your thing, you would get yourselves into some trouble. And that's what's going on here. Because by Paul and Silas sharing Christ, they had destroyed the income stream for these two slave owners. And so the slave owners play the race card and they get everyone incensed about them. And they start attacking and beating Paul and Silas. And they're thrown into jail. Wow. Isn't that a great thank you gift for sharing the gospel and and saving a slave girl? You do something good and you get thrown in prison. You get beaten. And so let's just press pause here on our story and talk about this for a second. Because this is a question and a challenge I get pretty consistently when it comes to following God's plan. Every time I've ever personally gotten on a plane to fly overseas, especially when I go to Africa, I always get this question, well, is it safe? And every short-term missions trip I've ever planned, especially ones that involve kids, the parents will always ask, is it safe? When we talk about immigration and refugee issues, we get this refrain, but they might be dangerous. Don't hear me wrong. I care about your safety. And when we plan trips for our youths, we do everything we can to keep them safe. But safe is not a guarantee. God is not safe. If the God you are following is safe, if you think God's goal for you is safe, then you might want to consider whether you're following the God of the Bible or not. Because there is nothing safe about the God who is written about in these pages. God's goal is not our safety. God's goal is to transform lives. 
And sometimes the business of transforming lives is just not that safe. As C.S. Lewis wrote in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he is good. And here's the deal. The Bible tells us that our days are numbered. In Job 14, it says, A person's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set a limit he cannot exceed. In Psalm 139, David writes, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Our days are our days. So we can choose to live them safely and perhaps miss out on being part of God's plan. Or we can worry a little less about our safety and maybe have the opportunity to see lives transformed. Let's get back to Paul and Silas. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, remember, they're in jail. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He thought and brought them out and asked, sir, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So Paul and Silas are, have been beaten. They've been thrown into prison and into stocks. And they're singing. Paul has seriously got to be the most frustrating person in the world if you hate the gospel. Because you can't do anything to dissuade this guy. Beat him, throw him in prison. Let's sing. Seriously? And they're singing so loud that their worship causes an earthquake. Chains are broken, doors thrown open. The jailer wakes up in the middle of this He assesses the situation and he decides to kill himself. Because what you have to understand is in the Roman world, if a jailer loses his prisoners, he will be put to death. And so the jailer assesses the situation and says, I'm not going to wait for the torture guys to come. I'm just going to take care of it myself. And the jailer, he is neither one of our first two characters. We had Lydia, who was rich. We had the slave girl, who was poor. The jailer, he's just a blue-collar ex-GI managing a prison. He doesn't really care about the intellect of Lydia. He doesn't really care about the charisma of the slave girl. The jailer, he just wants to do his job and go home 
have a beer and watch the game with his friends. He's just your average middle-class Joe, but he's duty-bound. So what does Paul do to reach the jailer? What does Paul do to help the jailer encounter Christ? Paul sets the example for the jailer that there is a bigger duty that transcends all earthly duties. Paul and Silas show the jailer an example of Christian living that shakes this man to his core. Because Paul and Silas, they had the opportunity to leave and run away. Now, Paul's a Roman citizen. Paul knows what will happen to this guy if they just get up and walk out of the jail. And would you blame him? He'd been beaten He'd been tossed into jail unlawfully because if you read on in the chapter, you find out that as a Roman citizen, it was actually illegal for them to beat him or throw him into jail. He has his chance to go. I know I would. Probably most of you would too. If you're sitting there in jail singing hymns and God gives you an earthquake and throws the doors open and breaks your chains, you're thinking, this is my chance to get out of Dodge. Right? I'm running as fast as I can back to Lydia's house because it's comfortable there and it's safe. But what do Paul and Silas do? Paul and Silas stay put. They don't see the earthquake as a sign from God to run. They see the earthquake as a sign from God to set an example for this jailer to help him encounter Christ. And so they stay right there in harm's way. And the jailer is just astonished. And he comes in, it says he comes in trembling before them with the most important question you could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? The jailer asked because of what he had observed. He took notice of their behavior And what was their answer? You can't do anything. The only thing you can do is believe. And just like Lydia did, and just like the slave girl did, he believes. His encounter with Christ completely transforms him. And just like Lydia, from the first night on, he is all in. He brings his family and shares his faith with his family. They all get baptized. And he moves from torturing the prisoners to caring for them, washing their wounds. Could you imagine being the jailer, washing the wounds of Paul and Silas, many of which you probably inflicted yourself? He doesn't wash them to be saved. He washes them because he has been saved. Then he takes them home with him and he shares a meal with them. Fast forward to the next day. They get everything sorted out with the officials. Paul and Silas are allowed to go. And it says, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. How does the church in Philippi begin? With a wealthy entrepreneur, a demon-possessed slave, and a duty-bound ex-GI. Three different people, three different backgrounds, 
three different cultures, an immigrant entrepreneur, a slave girl, and an honor-bound ex-GI. Paul reaches each of them with different strategies. He understands where they are in their journey with Christ. And then he contextualizes the gospel so that they could each understand it. The church in Philippi is born with these three people. Three people that would never have before considered sharing the same space, let alone sitting down to a meal together. If it weren't for the power of the gospel, if it weren't for their lives being transformed by their encounters with Christ, the gospel transcended their pasts. The gospel transcended the human divisions that existed between them. Just like the gospel can transcend our pasts and the divisions that exist between us. When Paul is writing about his yearning for them, he's writing to these people. He's writing to Lydia and the slave girl and the XGI. And he's saying, keep going, guys. I'm sure he's wondering, how's Lydia used her wealth to advance the gospel? How is the slave girl healed as she grew up? How is the soldier softened? They were all in from day one. This is the beginning that Paul wants them to remember when he writes, I always pray for joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, he never wants them to forget the divides that the gospel has conquered in their lives. He never wants them to forget that they've all been all in since day one. And he never wants them to stop. And so then he shares this prayer for them. And he says, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What does it mean that the gospel transcends human institutions and divisions? It means that the gospel cannot be contained by the walls we build. Walls we build from our past mistakes. Walls we build around race or culture or aptitude or social status or our backgrounds. And if we're honest, most of us hang out with people that are a lot like us. We live with people like us. We go to church with people like us. Yet the gospel is designed to transcend all of these walls that keep us separate, to create a new and vibrant community. And we're making progress. I see walls being broken down through our ESL program, through our support groups for adoptive parents and foster parents and moms of kids with special needs. I see growing diversity as I look out at the congregation, as I look out at you. Last week, as we had our starting point event, we got to spend time with six families, five of them from different cultural backgrounds because the gospel transcends our human divisions. 
And together, we can help our changing community encounter Christ. Together, we can see lives transformed. Together, this is what we get to do because it's the gospel that unites us. It's the gospel that transcends all of our divides. What did Lydia do? What did the jailer do? What did the young church in Philippi do? They allowed the gospel to help them transcend their divisions. And they gathered around the table together to celebrate their new lives and their new relationships in Christ. And that's exactly what we're going to do together today. We're going to celebrate together around the Lord's table. And so as the worship band comes up and the elements are prepared, I'd like us to ask ourselves some questions. Let's start with the question that the jailer asked. What must I do to be saved? It's the most important question we will ever ask. And the answer for the jailer is the same answer for us. Nothing. Nothing but believe. Believe that we are broken. Believe that there is nothing that we can do to overcome our brokenness. Believe in what Christ has done to overcome our brokenness. It's the gospel that transcends our brokenness. It's the gospel and the cross that reconcile us to our creator. It's the gospel that allows us to overcome our circumstances, our questions, our fears, and our doubts. In Matthew 26, Christ gathers with his disciples for the last meal he will share with them around a table before he will go to the cross. And when he had given thanks, he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. 